Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. I'm your co-host, Nathan, joined, as always, by co-host, Corey. This is episode 27. How are you doing, Corey? I'm very good, Nathan. Very good, yeah. Looking forward to this episode with you. Me too. And today we have with us a mystery nurse, a registered nurse that works somewhere in BC, has agreed to come on, and it's going to be uh, interesting to get her perspective on her current status within the system of the machine and uh, how she's been treated in general. So thank you, mystery guest, and welcome. Thank you. First and foremost, we want to kind of keep you as as, uh, as safe as we can in this episode, protect your identity to the fullest. That said, we want to explore your story a little bit. So we won't ask you all of the background that we might ask our other guests, and uh, we want to keep any identifiers out of this. But can you explain to us, first, first of all, just what some of the personal medical work factors were that led up to you developing a, an issue with substance use? So one of the main introductories actually to my drug of choice or the route I was using, I was having some background medical issues and at one point it landed me in the ER. So I became one of those patients introduced to opioid from the system when they pushed IV Dilaudid. When I had that happen, the feeling, the dopamine rush and everything else and my nursing skills was the first addiction thought that went in my brain of, I can do this myself. Right. I had that background knowledge and it just... After that, it just made everything easier. I wasn't dealing with my personal factors very well. I mean, you graduate nursing school, but it doesn't actually graduate you into maturity. I don't have the personal skill development that was needed to also manage what was happening at work and my personal life and this balance. So work was also starting to get stressful and not a lot of resources either, just because of all the other duties to report if you were to seek out any type of help. There's a fine line of that too nurses being encouraged to report to manager or the college. So I was just kind of stuck in this hard place of having this medical problem that they weren't able yet to identify, as well as some other chronic conditions, some personal stuff that was happening that I didn't have the skills to navigate on my own, compounded by the stress and stuff as well at work that needed, and then being introduced to the substance of the lauded through our actual healthcare system. Yeah, I've... Uh... I'm familiar with that. I've had that experience myself. It was a similar situation. Uh, would you say that when you were introduced to Hydromorph, it seemed to not just help with the pain that you're experiencing from uh, your illness or whatever landed you in the hospital, but it also helped with emotional pain and other things that were going on at the time? Is that the, the same kind yes. of thing? It gave me a little bit of energy at the start. We had the euphoria. I was kinder at work. Mm. It definitely at that point had my brain, but it wasn't enough yet for me to recognize the addiction. Instead, it was, yeah, it made all my problems go away. So I was able to focus on other aspects. Right. Yeah. No, that we've heard that story before. We've both been through that personally. It makes a lot of sense. But the you think the link established itself pretty quickly? Yes. When I described my addiction to others, it was more... Um, once it got my brain, it was done. Like up until then, I felt I had control. I used it infrequently at work and I didn't quite see where the line when it finally grabbed me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. hard to see coming. Yeah. Um, so what uh, what led to you being discovered? How did, uh, how did your college figure out what was going on? From my understanding, it was kind of silently phased out in some of the policies that managers could manage this 
in their office or in their units and departments. They didn't actually have to go higher up and report, even though there's this duty to report that the college says. There's kind of this fine line that, no, there's actually this other pathway route, which is what nurses can find when they access the union first, or they have alternative channels where the college doesn't even discover it. And I've learned this even in speaking with other fellow Caduceus members and groups, that theirs was taken care of in-house. It was discovered, but their manager kept it because they actually were able to. But this wasn't broadcasted to many places. So I had a new manager, and when I was reported, it wasn't actually a major report of saying, there's this huge problem, or we need you to investigate, or we're doing a duty to report. It was more of this, we've had this investigation, we're just informing you that so-and-so is going off work. We're hoping that she gets the treatment she needs and will return there was no concerns really listed about my practice. It was noted that they had no concerns about my practice and they had no proof and they'd done their own investigation. They were just informing I would be leaving for a little bit and didn't even actually say what it was for. And after that, that's what launched an investigation with the college. But I was also told to call the college myself and inform mm-hmm. them that I would be going off of work. So before the letter got sent, I did call the college to inform I will be going off for a medical leave. And I didn't actually say what it was. It was just mm-hmm. a medical leave thing. So at least it was documented. My name was there. Okay. So how did anybody get to a conclusion then when you, I'm assuming opiates weren't brought up in any of those conversations at first. Is that correct? That is correct. It wasn't even brought into the letter sent to the college okay. informing it was more, that was enough that they launched this investigation, even though I had my IME done. They didn't really become involved until they sent me this letter to go non-practicing. So how much after, how much later was it that until you found out the details of their investigation? They didn't really do this in-depth investigation. So basically what happened was I was at, uh, went on leave, the union got involved, they called leave, they advised me what to do. What actually helped me in all this case, too, was they told me to go non-practicing or make the license switch, and I procrastinated. Plus, I was panicking, and I refused. I didn't do it until the college sent the letter. And it was actually when the college sent the letter is what actually enabled me to go on the longer-term disability, because I passed all the things that the IME said to do relatively quickly, but because I didn't have my license, I couldn't return to work. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't take me off that long-term disability until I got my license back. So I actually completed everything from the time it was done when I got sent home. I was ready to go to work in six months from the day of being sent home from work to completing everything with the IME and completing inpatient treatment. One of the conditions was having 30 days abstinent even after getting out of treatment before I could return to work. So all in all, it was a six-month thing. The college told me they'd be investigating probably three, four months into it. I didn't hear from the college until all of a sudden it was I was like pretty much ready to go. All these things were passed from the IME when I first got my first thing saying we're investigating. Don't talk to anybody. Be confidential. So I'm six months in. I got my first review from it in eight months from the time I got sent home. And then we started the negotiations. And from there, I finally got my final negotiations and consent agreement done 11 months into it. And from my understanding... Mine went actually quicker, and I don't know why. Mm-hmm. And I was even told that by my elite representative that it went quick. And then my understanding with the investigation, they didn't actually talk to any of my colleagues, and I was aware of that. What they took was um, just the initial complaints that went into my manager, but they didn't even take into consideration what my manager had investigated and the conclusion of that, and they used those complaints still against me 
overall and the entire negotiation. Yeah, I noticed your case is particularly strange just because there was some differences between what your your IME doctor had recommended and what the college ended up with. There's some interesting ones there. Can you tell us a little bit about how your your timeline shaped up? Just uh, because I'm curious where they got this from. I, I've never... Yeah, so at the start, too, when I was panicking about the investigation, Leap had told me the college would basically follow what the IME said, what the addiction specialist doctor said. I don't think they liked that too much, and I was luckily enough to have an IME that really backed up the reasonings of why I didn't have to do some of the stuff that was usually given with others. So my IME stated, again, I would complete the inpatient treatment, followed by 30 days sobriety, with generic limitations that we see with everybody. The first year, you don't handle any controlled substances. The second year, I could. The second year, I had to have a second nurse sign and witness. And then the third year, I was free range without having to do, um, without having to have a second nurse as long as there's no concerns. During these three years, I was also to have twice a month random urine biological monitoring sampling. And that was it. And mine was to start the sampling and all this stuff was to start before I returned to work at the sign of at the start signing of my contract, and that's the relapse prevention agreement. When I went to the college, they threw some extra things on, so, oh, and I didn't have to go to meetings. That was a big thing, and he brought that up, and we had that discussion. I went to the college, and we had to go through numerous negotiations, and one of the things that they were bringing in for many nurses is they're now doing mandatory hair testing on top of the random twice-a-month drug testing. And the hair testing goes back three months, and they also want you to do the twice-random urine. Which made no sense, so my understanding and others are doing it too argued on cultural aspects in regards to hair. So I had that taken out, but the next condition they put on in that negotiation, what came back was, um, should I ever have a positive or if I missed one of my random urine samples, I was to have immediately a drug hair test or witness urine sample. And the witness urine sample is different than my usual one because it means I have to expose myself. Basically, they put the instructions in there too. I'm supposed to lift my shirt up to mid-chest. I have to pull my pants and underwear all the way down to my ankles, and I have to do a full 360 spin in front of the monitor while they observe me doing the mm-hmm. sample, and that's to be done within 24 hours, and same with the drug, uh, the hair sample. The other thing the college then brought in was, yes, I had this IME saying, even in the IME, the doctor said it would be best if I didn't return to a workplace with narcotic or controlled substance handling. It would be in the best interest. The colleges now started making the nurses basically mandating us to handle these substances or we get an extra year of monitoring. And that's what happened with mine was I had this opportunity to go into a position now that didn't have me accessing or administering any controlled substances. And the college had said, no, if you don't actually go and have access and administer controlled substances, so putting me in this dangerous position, we are going to give you another year monitoring. And when I asked for the, I did ask for the data for um, how successful these programs were because I could see the dangerous situation I'm being put in. Wouldn't it be best if, you know, I got this job lined up, I don't have to return to this area of nursing, but now you're actually putting me in this area of nursing and putting me in danger of a program that really has no evidence. Right. I'll just quickly mention here that this is a a pretty bizarre twist that uh, seems to be a recent thing. I I haven't been able to summon up any evidence to corroborate what 
the the college's plan is or to to back up that that kind of a paradigm it is very concerning to me because uh i mean obviously i would tend to agree with uh, your ime doc on the statement that avoiding narcotics is probably the best case scenario for any of us who've been in this situation mandating it as part of the completion of your treatment or getting an extra year i mean that's i don't know extortion at best coercion <laughs> maybe i suppose you could say but either way it puts you in a situation where bad things can happen now there's a couple other things here that that uh, i'm not sure if you want to talk about but you know what kind of challenges are you facing now because when you started out you were in a position where it was a little bit safer and then you've been transferred now you had an opportunity to stay in the safe zone but they've put you right into the mayhem you're in a you're now in a much busier workplace and you're you're still in a spot where you're not supposed to be handling narcotics is that correct yes i am supposed to have access but not allowed to have access so I have to be in a place where they're using them, but I'm not allowed to have the codes. I'm not allowed to waste or give or administer or witness or anything like that. So I have to be around it. That's a that's an odd one, Corey. I I don't know. I'm not sure what the logic could be there. I I guess they're thinking this is a test, right? But I mean, it's an awfully dangerous gamble, isn't it? It sure feels like that to me. It feels like a like they are gambling with with this individual's life, like. <laughs> I mean, there isn't, there isn't evidence to reinforce this yet. What we know about, well, two things, what we know about positions or, or units, departments, areas of nursing where narcotics are given, those are quite inherently more fast paced, high volume, busy areas of nursing. So associated with that is some, some risk in itself, but also what we know about environment with any kind of addictive behavior. If given the choice about for someone who says, yeah, I always picked up my street drug from, from this neighborhood, and then they go into recovery and abstinence, and you say, okay, you have the choice of either staying right on that same street corner in this same neighborhood or moving somewhere else where, you, where it's a new environment and there's less stress and less triggers and stuff, we would have no question about that. The, the latter would keep someone safer. So right. yeah. safety doesn't seem to be the priority there. It seems like it is, in fact, a test or a, a trust-building exercise, for right. lack of a better term. Yeah. So, mystery nurse, you're in a situation where you are not supposed to be handling narcotics, but you're surrounded by narcotics in, in a busy workplace. How challenging are you finding that right now? I'm actually finding it pretty challenging just because I came from a less stressed workplace where I didn't have access and then being moved into a place that I didn't want to be. But then also um, understanding too that we are chronically short-staffed. Patients are more complex and sicker. There's this bigger harm reduction approach of giving controlled substances, and we're seeing more of that. So what has happened, and I've talked to other nurses too, is you're not supposed to be leaving controlled substances out. And that was one of the first things I noticed is if we had a lot of palliatives or a lot on pain control or on the IMAP program, all of this stuff was just left out. They would take it out because they didn't have time, so there would be tons of syringes filled with, same with those on seizures, with mm -hmm. Ativan, and then there's a whole bunch of different syringes marked with Dilaudid. And ketamine is big now, too, and they would all just be sitting out there, or just the pills, because they knew they had to go back, and they would just grab everything they needed, and those could be sitting out for an undetermined length of time. And I'd even say, you can't be having these out. 
nobody really cared at that point too because I'd come walking by where the med counter is because it's not just a narcotic controlled substance zone it is a zone for numerous things in there it's not the separate med room it's like a locker space nobody cared they would just say oh I trust you mm-hmm. and that was it they're aware of what you're going through because they've been informed that you're trying to recover or get through this this situation where you had an issue with drug use at work or outside of work. Um, I think in your case, you weren't diverting or taking anything. It was just a, an outside of work thing. But regardless, um, that's not going to make it any easier if you're uh, trying to work and nobody is helping you keep those boundaries up. So that's, uh, I don't think I could do that. I I have to make a comment here. This is what I, the business of drugs lying around on the counter, this is this was a huge contributing factor to the escalation of my addictive behavior. And, and uh, this was how I, what I did, I would take it off the countertop. And it was, I think the first time I ever heard that, that this was going to change and this would be enforced and no longer will we have drugs out on the countertop that won't be allowed. Half used vials will not be allowed to be sitting out. Our sharp containers are going to change all of these things that it was years that I was hearing this long before I was ever entrenched in, in that behavior. And long before I went off work and then close to, I remember like weeks before I went off work, I was told that again, this is going to change. It never changed. There, it, there seems to be very, very little desire to enforce that or to change, to implement any kind of change around how narcotics and controlled substances sit around. And yet listen to the the rhetoric that you hear. I mean, if you read one of these contracts, you'd think that in our guest's case here, you'd think that she was walking back into a controlled environment where everything was locked away nicely and there's not going to be any of those type of risks out there. It's all been taken care of. That's supposed to be that side of the monitoring contract, that side of the return to practice or relapse prevention agreement is supposed to be, we'll take care of that. We're going to make sure that you have an environment that's not ridiculous you, mm-hmm. and so that you can recover and, and get your feet back under you. And we know, we've known the whole time that this is all nonsense. It's If anything, it's probably more chaotic than it's ever been. There's probably more stuff lying around. I mean, it, I don't foresee anything in the future that, that would make me believe that this is going to change anytime soon. No, uh, especially with, uh, I mean, we, we, we can't, we can't staff the hospitals properly. So you're going to have people with the best of intentions, but fatigue sets in and you have to triage, right? Yeah. And, and the college is interested in nabbing nurses who, who are caught or suspected of diverting narcotics, but in terms of upholding a practice standard, you'd think that part of that would also be getting to the, that problem of drugs being so accessible and available. Because it is a practice standard that you waste and dispose of medications properly. That's part of safe drug handling and medical medication administration is that you then dispose of them. And so if that's not being done, all of these units are violating that practice standard from the beginning. Yes. And where is the uh, where's the regulation? Yeah. It's just there's, you know, a continued dialogue. There's a lot of talk and uh, I guess not a lot of action. It seems a little unfair. I mean, to put it lightly, putting somebody at this stage of uh, recovery back into that environment, I think it's unreasonable to start with, regardless of even if all the practice guidelines were followed and everything was supposed to be safe. I mean, the fact that 
you know, you're required at some point again to pick up that syringe full of hydromorph yourself and get back into the habit of injecting that into people. I don't know. Mystery nurse, you were, you've been nodding along as we've been talking here that in agreement, can you outline a few other challenges? You know, we're aware that there have been a few other challenges at the workplace for you with, with this issue. Yeah. So on top of them, just medications just lying around. There's been numerous times, too, that the entire controlled substance area, cupboard, lockbox, that's a big thing, has been left unlocked. And other nurses have come by and have said, who's, who's left this open? And who knows how long it's been open that it's just sitting like that. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is practice standard, too, of having somebody witness your waste. Now, this is the problem with the short staff. And I was turned away from other positions because they recognize the short staffness bit. On night shifts, they're supposed to have five nurses. When we're short-staffed, it's easily three, which means when one is on break or one's not available, there's just need one other nurse. I can't waste. So now that nurse has to leave the unit to go to a whole other unit to have that signed or monitored as a waste, as per protocol. And it leaves now one nurse on the entire unit of 20-plus patients. So what has happened instead is the nurse watched them waste it. So then I'll watch the next one waste it when they switch their break so they can sign for each other. I've also, because it's so short-staffed, they don't have the time to always get back to their patients. And I get it. It's not fair that they have to police and monitor me. And they've been put in this position of monitoring and enforcing my restrictions. To the point now, they pull the medication. They're busy. They don't care. They hand it to me. They won't give it. It's more like, I don't care. I don't care if you use it. I don't care if the patient uses it. I don't care if you sell it on the street or the comments I get. Like, I just don't care. Here you go. I've signed it out. I've got to go. Those are the comments you get. Those are the comments I get all the time. I trust you, which not the best, but um, I, yeah, they'll, they'll rationalize it too with their, I trust you. I don't care. I really don't care if you use it. I don't care if patient never gets it, but yeah, that's basically it. It's the, I don't care. Mm. I'm too rushed. I really don't care what happens best of luck kind of thing. Yeah. And that sounds very jaded, sounds very cynical and cold, but I think people have to to kind of understand the state of nursing as well. I mean, all the nurses you're working with are also exhausted, right? They're, you know, they're working under conditions that are less than favorable. And like I said, they're, they're trying to triage patients and it is a difficult situation for everybody to be in. That being mm-hmm. said, I mean, Man, that is that is pretty hard. Somebody telling you, I don't even care. Just do it, do whatever with it. Yeah, they don't acknowledge this kind of thing. And I've explained it. Uh, these are my restrictions, but they also don't understand what's the point. Like you are, they know I'm being monitored because if I'm selected for a drug test on the day I'm at work, I have to leave, and then they have to cover my patient load until I get back. But it's a requirement for public safety to pull me off that busy floor to go and do this random urine sample. So, yeah, they're just, um, they know it's part of the restrictions. They just don't get it when I'm being randomly drug tested twice a month, too. I'm not as much help as I could be at times. And because of that, if I have to wait for those nurses now, like when I do push the boundary, which is tough for me, then my patients are delayed with their pain management because I have to wait till that nurse has time. And that can be sometimes two hours later. For any controlled substance, whether it's a sleeping pill, out of van, their beer, their pain management thing. So it, it's being delayed. And I've also had my confidentiality breached by nurses not knowing what to say to the patients when some of them clue in that somebody else is bringing in 
these medications to where I actually had a nurse say, can't give out the controlled substances. And I had to pull that nurse aside and be Eesh. like, you can't tell the patient oh, man. the restrictions I have. Like, let's try something different. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can say, that nurse isn't available yeah. at this time I'm bringing them. Yeah, that's uh, that's a tough one. Did you have something there, Corey, before I, I wanted to mention <laughs> something else? But... <clears throat> Lots. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> this, to me, this is just, it's such an outrageous story. And you are absolutely right, Nathan, in that this is the product of our current healthcare system, that all of these nurses are, are just stressed to the max and stretched so thin, obviously. Couldn't agree more. But... This is where, in my opinion, nurses are perpetuating the problem or failing to see that some resistance or some drawing a line of saying, no, we have to uphold these standards. Nurses are the the keeper of that. They are. And, and as soon as we become so, so flexible, flexible to the point that we are putting our colleagues at risk directly of death, mm-hmm. you're now a, a part of that same problem. You're a contributor to the that whole systemic problem. And to me, nurses, anytime I hear nurses stand up and say, enough is enough. We're not safe. We're, our patients are not safe. Our standards of practice are not able to be upheld in this current environment or in this current circumstance. I applaud that. Right now, the nurses in New York City are striking for the same reason, for all of those reasons. But- well- if the tables were turned, and if our mystery nurse were to say to to their colleagues, "I don't, you know, I'm I'm leaving the unit right now. I'm going on a break. I don't care if it leaves you alone. I don't care if you're going into this room with a an aggressive or violent patient. I don't care." The shit would hit the fan, and mm-hmm. the number of ways that that if the tables are turned, these same nurses could be reported. It's so appalling to me. But look at the situation she's in. You're absolutely right. And what does a mystery nurse do about the fact that she's basically, she's been forced into a situation here or heavily coerced into working in an environment that's not safe. And then she's under requirements from her relapse prevention agreement, not to handle or be, you know, not to even be administering these uh, medications and to have colleagues turn around and, and just like, here, catch, you know, how are you managing that? I guess what the term would be white knuckling it. As long as I pass all of my biological monitoring, I'm hoping I don't get plagued and I just keep moving forward. But it's been very difficult with the bound, like setting those boundaries again and realizing this is my license. This falls on me. It doesn't matter that we're short staffed or what the other nurses are doing, the way the college has set it up. It's individual. Mm-hmm. You individually protect your license to protect the public. Instead of this team approach that this team's putting me in danger, but it doesn't matter because as long as they're following their scope and I'm following mine, it should be fine. But it is, it's, I'm very stressed. I get stressed when I go to work, depending on who's on, depending who, what patient they give me, if it's more appropriate or not. It does cause some discomfort when I'm given different patients or what seems like a lighter load. I feel like these nurses are going to be giving my medications or checking to see if that fentanyl patch is there and signing it off or anything like Mm -hmm. that. I feel I have to be more available to help them. Right. Yeah. Uh, No matter what you do, you're kind of in a situation that you're going to be uncomfortable. And it, it, it gives like, just listening to you describe that gives me the type of angst that is fuel. That's fuel for using drugs in my case. Anyways, 
I do want to quickly mention something to people who don't realize this. I found this astonishing. They are now serving beer and alcoholic beverages as part of, uh, I guess this is a this is a harm reduction approach because they, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they don't want people to be forced into the uh, alcohol withdrawal protocols when they go to the hospital. So nurses are now required to serve alcohol along with everything else they do. Uh, have I got that correct? Yes, um, it's becoming more common. <laughs> what is <to> happening? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> I can't. Uh, I, I, this is I, we passed the realm of bizarre quite a while ago, but this <laughs> is getting. I mean, you were juggling like ten chainsaws that are lit on fire, and now, by the way, let's make sure everybody's good and drunk. Well, yeah, that behavior thing, but they've also neglected to consider there's many different nurses who have cultural backgrounds where they're not allowed to touch alcohol or give it. So right. now not only those nurses can't do it, they now have to ask somebody else, or you're now impeded on the religious cultural right. And I've seen that as well at work. I can't do it because of restrictions, so-and-so can't do it because of this. Patients getting, you know, more behaviorally challenging because they're not getting their schedule beer at this time that they're allowed to have. And then trying to manage those behaviors because you never know what's actually going to come out. But the alcohol, and it doesn't take into consideration the nurses and the other patients on the unit who have trauma backgrounds with alcohol. So the other thing that I notice is in hearing you speak that a nurse with restrictions or a nurse with a cultural background that acts in place of a restriction that would stop them from being comfortable with, with that, there, this creates sort of a power imbalance too. And with a power imbalance comes the opportunity to, to take advantage of someone. And if a nurse, whether it is because of a, a restriction from the college secondary to an addictive behavior or a religious or cultural background... And they feel like they have to do take on extra tasks to smooth things over to make it better with their colleagues. That sounds abusive to me. <laughs> if we put that into the context of like a relationship, I have to do all these things or else this person is going to be pissed at me. That sounds like an abusive relationship. Yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely. And I'm wondering, mystery yeah. nurse, what is your recourse here? What could you do as far as now? I'm guessing you've you've probably asked your maybe you've asked your leap officer. I, I I'm not exactly sure what kind of communication has went on, but do you think there's any? You know, if this continues and no, everybody is just marching right past your uh, monitoring agreement and basically saying to hell with it, we're going to do whatever, and your boundaries don't mean anything to us. Do you have? Do you feel like you have any recourses or, or any way to? mitigate that no absolutely not even i have brought it forward and i do have an upcoming meeting again with the manager i'm basically having to create a paper trail or a legal trail of me voicing these concerns and bringing it forward but i also i'm hesitant to name other nurses i'd rather speak to them directly because i wasn't given that either I, you're taught to deal with your conflicts interpersonally before you escalate it up to manage it but I don't. It's more like I do take on these extra things. And when I do ask nurses, some nurses, when I explain, because we get new ones all the time as well, where I now have to tell them I have restrictions, which means I'm going to have to come and ask you to give these substances. And when I ask them to do it, they're like, yeah, can you do this and this and this for me? Oh, I so see. So they will give me a list of things to do too right away. And I'm like, all right. And it's not just a 
simple net exchange, it is... Can you give us an example? Yeah. Um, so it can be a lot of personal care, which is fine. So the medication might take them, you know, 10 minutes tops to go and draw up, sign for a Gibson patient, and I might have to go into a major bowel care cleanup that has now taken half an hour because it's an explosive one in the thing. It's a two-person care that's needed. And now my time is in there for half an hour for that or going in with a behavioral challenge patient to give the medication to where I'm ducking and dodging, <laughs> trying to gently encourage this patient to take something with like applesauce or things like that will pop up. And it might pop up later of, I gave you this med, can you now go give this med to this patient who's delirious and has hit like three of us now? Can you get this, get this in? Right. So transactional uh, to the point of, you're literally, you're, you're getting the shit jobs and the jobs that nobody else wants. So thus escalating your difficulty level of an already posturously difficult situation. I wonder if that was considered at all by uh, anybody who made those return to practice agreements. Great question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt, I it. doubt it. Yeah. You mentioned um, having to create a paper trail. You mentioned, you know, feeling uncomfortable about for lack of a better term, ratting on your colleagues or naming names about your colleagues. Do you see other other barriers that are either literal or sort of implied that are in place that could stop someone from coming forward with concerns or speaking speaking their experience? Yes, because I can't go to the college, especially since I, yeah, I was put in a position of either I give this medication or not, and I had to give something right then and there, even with them watching or not watching, so I've been put in some precarious situations, which now makes it challenging where I can't actually go to the college to say what's happening, because now it puts me at risk of investigation, and with mm -hmm. how supportive they have been, <laughs> I have no idea what's going to come next or what repercussions I'm going to have, because it's going to be on me and not the situation that they put me in. Right. Because I didn't want to be here, it was them pushing back with all their restrictions and requirements that have led me to be in this position. So I can't go to them, and I can't go to my manager, really, to say. I can only say, in a roundabout way, this is the culture. They're not respecting boundaries. But I am no longer given the option to even have this trust relationship with any of them, because so far, they have not been working in the best of my interest. Mm -hmm. So I am kind of stuck of either trying to manage these personal relations with all the nurses and with the patient without getting me in more trouble or restrictions. Right. And I can, I, I can absolutely empathize with your reluctance to go to the college, even if you were, you know, everything was ticking along exactly as your return to practice agreement was written. Nobody in your position or the position that we've been in is going to go to the college with anything. Why? Because every wave you make has a repercussion and it's usually comes back to you as some sort of a relapse behavior or some kind of a, uh, you just you're in a situation where you don't want to draw attention to yourself at all. And yet you're under duress in the proximity of your drug of choice. And literally nobody's watching. Nobody's watching except for higher up. I do know of a few other nurses who were on the unit right before I got back as well. And other units in the hospital who have relapsed because of the culture, not just with the other nurses. So far mine have been, you know, pretty good. For the most part, but with the leaving the medications around, 
And I even brought forward concerns, and I still haven't had responsive. Am I supposed to be having patients with a fentanyl patch or with the sub-Q lines? Because in the sub-Q lines, you're still holding 0.4 mils of medication. Mm-hmm. And those fentanyl patches, even when they do a check, if it goes missing at 5 o'clock or 1700, be it has been signed for, it now looks terrible on me as well. So they're yeah. like, bringing things up and no one's really addressing. Everyone's just trying to survive, and I'm trying to survive alongside, but Whereas they might have two hoops to jump through, I've got 20 to make it through a 12-hour shift. Right. So we wanted to ask you a little bit about the the culture and how that affects you, but is it still kind of the just get over it, do your job and tough it out kind of mentality? Are you seeing any improvement there on the front lines or is it? No improvement. And then like, besides the I don't care, it's always, I restrictions and then the nurse is like, well, why? And I you know, you're told you don't have to tell them why or why you have restrictions, but it's pretty obvious when you're not allowed yeah. to go around the controlled substances. And I'm now telling numerous people all the time why I can't give because I have these restrictions from the college and with Island Health. And so then um, the hardest part, too, is now building these relationships where I have a few stigmas against me, one of addictions and two, possibly because of my background that I'm now navigating that we know is it's real. It's in the research and evidence. If these mm-hmm. colleagues haven't worked through their biases, I might have that as well, which I can see when it comes out just with a comment of, I don't care if you use this. Yeah. I yeah. don't care if the yeah. patient does. Basically, almost a thing of, even though they might not be intending it, uh, but it's only a matter of time. And yeah. they've seen that with a few others that at some point, yes, they have relapsed because of condescending remarks made to them or as well the medications being left openly and then yes the lockbox thing the sharps does nothing because when those sharps containers are full guess where they go in a separate room that nobody else can see but you have access to mm-hmm. until they're picked up mm-hmm. it's a very dangerous situation and i have to use all of my healthier coping mechanisms but i am always very stressed i have a lot of anxiety when i go on not just because of the patient workloads but because of these extra things i have to manage without a lot of support do you feel that you're sort of being set up. Does it leave you with that feeling? Yes. And I felt that at the very start when they did that. And we tried very hard. My union team and even I looked out the really good disability manager as well, who was trying hard. And that's what I felt when all of a sudden they came in, you know, I had this great IME saying I shouldn't have access. Fair enough. I can do that. There's all these other things. And then all of a sudden having the college come down on me and saying, no, if you don't want to keep paying, cause you know, I have to pay financially for these tests mm-hmm. if i want an extra year of my life back i now have to go in and work with these substances as for the college whereas the ime one i could have been done earlier i could have still met all these restrictions i could get into a position which i had of or never touching controlled substances again i would have enjoyed that but nope the college has now come in and said guess what as you mentioned earlier if I was to go past the part that I use, you're supposed to switch your routine. You don't go past the alcohol store that you use. You don't right. go past where your dealer's place was. And now it's like, you get to keep going past this. They put me in a position where there's more of them now. So I do feel like at the start of being set up where I was just like, are you are you kidding me? You're mm-hmm. not going to put me into this environment of I have to give them? It's really baffling to me because the doctor who who made the statement on your your IME, uh, independent medical evaluation, this is what the college is supposed to use for evidence-based treatment. So when a college goes against, and I, I mean, 
your IME doctor is not some guy who just rolled out of school. This is a doctor who is well-respected, knows what he's doing, a lot of experience, et cetera. And I just wonder where these, where these proclamations come from. You know, how does the college get it in their head that this is the right thing to do? Where are they getting the evidence? Is it evidence-based at all? What is motivating them to do this? I mean, I would love to get a, a real answer for that because it just doesn't make any sense to me. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's such a strange system. That being said, um, from your perspective, being somebody who's front lines, you're in the trenches right now in this weird environment, is there anything that you can see that would be uh, kind of a simple fix or something that could be made better just by a couple protocol changes? What kind of advice can you, could you give to the machine if you had the ability to do so? I honestly think if I if I had given a different position, because right. not all nursing positions need to be in this, the next big thing is the safe staffing. So the college is all about protecting the public, yet there's nothing, no pressure being put onto these worst places. If I had enough nurses, every shift and the care rates and everything else needed, it would make my restrictions a lot easier to manage, even just like the night shift or during the day when we're busy and you're in acute medicine area. It is extremely difficult to leave, and now I am leaving all those colleagues and my patient care in an unsafe environment. But yet, I'm going to be the one in trouble. Right. And then, yeah, enforcing some of their practices with the narcotics and controlled substances. It's just, it's a disaster. It's a really dangerous situation, and it really needs to come from multiple different directions. Like having more addictions units for those patients that now are medically stable, it's now an addictions thing, let's move them down there. We don't have right. enough of that. We don't have enough mental health. We don't have enough palliative services. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty difficult, I guess, to make any even subtle changes to policy or protocols when you don't have the workforce to implement them. Yep. And then changing the program as well. They're all about this abstinence approach, which is fine, but they don't give any other resources or support. Not that I would take them either, mm. but that was what really bothered me at the start was they didn't get an actual full investigation. They came in heavy with this abstinence and then didn't follow my IME or what my addiction specialist was saying. And everything they were doing wasn't current, up-to-date, evidence-based. Yeah. And yet that's how it's going to be. Uh, that's how it's going to be publicized. Uh, if you ask any questions, the answers you're going to get is that, oh, it's all evidence-based medicine. It's really not. It's really not. Um, there's. It's very... The data-driven policies are few and far between. So, yeah. yeah, yeah not, it's a a, not a simple response. Yeah, not a simple response no. on that. And not acknowledging that I'm also a person and not just a nurse. But really, ultimately, when I look at it, it would have been a lot easier if they kept me in the job that I love, that I didn't have access to anything, and away I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about on a workplace culture level? Like, what would you change about... And there's, there's obvious ones like not being pressured by your colleagues to, to, to be okay with doing some of the things that you've had to do here. But how do you see creating a lasting change in, in nursing culture? Because to me, when I think about this, and I, we had mentioned the, the phrase, you know, nurses eating their young. This is not the case of nurses eating the young, but maybe nurses eating the vulnerable. And I, mm. I have seen that as well, that where nurses can can be very hard on other nurses if they are perceived as being vulnerable in any which way, whether it's you know that they are struggling with their mental health or struggling with an addictive behavior or or something's going on at home, 
or whatever it may be. I think we can all think of times where we've seen sort of bullying behavior. So how do you change that culture in nursing or does it have to come from the top? What do you think? It's actually going to be really difficult, right? Because it's going to be a policy thing that what those nurses are doing are within legal boundaries and legislation. Those microaggressions can't be really disciplined with the policy when they're making the policies within whatever the legal aspects of BC are, when they're like, no, this is actually what bullying means. Mm-hmm. Here's the precedent. So HR doesn't have to do any changes when the province has set these things out. So it's very difficult to make those policy changes when higher up we have this very broad, weird thing of what bullying looks like. For me, when I look in the environment, yeah, I, I don't see policies changing. That's going to be d- difficult to even put into words when it's like, no, you're breaking the law because the law says this. But it's more like having more interpersonal sessions. Again, one thing I always hate about nursing when they put us in this high regard, which is fantastic, but more it's like they don't you don't get this automatic maturity when you get handed your degree. All of a sudden, you're not this emotionally intelligent person, and we see that with the interactions with the patients and with each other where I feel like workplace environments, they do, they do need more training on um, more support. So right now, I think you get like six counseling sessions paid per year. But I feel like there should be a lot more of that because when people are engaging in these behaviors, it's coming from a personal thing. And we know our personal values and our attitudes and beliefs come into our professional work, which is tough because this is where the, the college doesn't see this personal aspect. You're a nurse and a nurse only when really... When I walk out of there, I am also now a community member and a Canadian with a whole bunch of stuff that I need to work on. But yet, mm-hmm. it's not acknowledged, but I do see they need more support. So we need more of a speak up culture. We do need enabling leadership, meaning leadership that also believes in getting rid of this bullying aspect and supporting those who speak up and giving them the support of, I actually know this is a bullying aspect. But I also need leadership that is able to understand how this is Indigenous-specific racism to this person, or this is a stigma and a bias that has now popped up. And to give them the words that the nurses might need or how to navigate that with also not shaming those nurses. Sometimes they really might not know that it is a full bullying or lying or whatever else. They think they're just being direct. So it's very difficult conversation. I think, yeah, we need leadership that enables it. We need more support outside of work for nurses to address whatever's happening. We need more words how to, how to say the words at work and have the supportive environment. But for the most part, yeah, it's, it's a struggle to set boundaries and then navigate hostile interactions. I usually meet it with humor. Not all the nurses have that, and I see that, especially with the new grads that do get eaten alive a bit, mm-hmm. where I have to step in, and when I step in, then I need to be ready to have those aggressions to me. It's a tricky dance every day at work. Sounds it- like it. It really sounds like it. You know, to me, I, I, I can't help but think that a, a courageous manager could not change the system, but could do a lot to change the culture within a unit of some of that stuff. But I also know that like the, this whole system right now is designed so that, that those microaggressions and that pressure from above is also happening well above the manager and happening pointed down. And it goes down from there too. But in terms of opening up the dialogue, a manager could do that, I think. I don't certainly don't know your manager, but from managers that I have experienced in my in my years as a nurse, primarily they lacked courage to take us on something like that. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it would take somebody who's strong enough to withstand the the storm from above, somehow kind of take that on and then protect the people below them. And that, I believe that is actually one of the best management uh, traits you can have is mm-hmm. to kind of shield your your people from those forces. 
because ultimately you're the one who is in charge of dealing with them. Right. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. not an easy thing, but yeah, the other, the other thing you mentioned, mystery nurse is the education factor. And I I think you're absolutely right there that there's, there's going to be tons of people, uh, nurses coming right out of school who don't have the emotional maturity. They don't get it. They don't, they, they don't have the understanding to navigate conversations with the right words, the right responses. And uh, so a lot of that is probably inflammatory when it's, you know, it, it comes from ignorance. So there is an opportunity there maybe for somebody to have a position where their their job is actually to almost like a, it'd be almost like a, a ward mediator or something, right? But yeah, it's it's not an easy thing especially not now. And you're not going to, you're not going to see the province all of a sudden dumping money into making things easier for you. It appears they're just hell bent on making things worse, but uh, appreciate your thoughts on that. It's all good stuff. Do you have anything else that you want to add? You've got the floor. Uh, I wish more nurses were aware to contact LEAP if they're struggling with substances and that other nurses were also aware of what it actually entails when they go and report somebody for substance use or mental health. Right. Like with my situation, now some of them were quite surprised with what's happened. My whole life got blown up. It seemed to be an extreme response. They had very little evidence for anything. And even then, like I acknowledge I do need help, but they were just so shocked at the extremes and everything that has now happened in my life that my stress was increased. I now have this monitoring. What does that mean? Well, I'm also financially paying for it. I can't go anywhere unless I get permission from my monitoring company. Mm-hmm. I can't really leave this position I'm in because I've been medically duty to accommodate into it, which is a permanent position. So if I want to go to somewhere else, I need to find a manager that's willing to accommodate that twice a month. But I have to go to a drug test, meaning I have to leave and go to the nearest lab that's available. And it could be anywhere from one to two hours that I'm off the floor that mm-hmm. you look like you'd have to accommodate and I have these other restrictions. So I don't think a lot of people are aware of exactly what all of this entails. And then you have the nurses that are mandatory, have to go to their meetings, that's three times a week on top of their shifts, the drug testing, the funds, whatever else, when there's other avenues that could be taken or discussed. But yeah. for me, I think the biggest thing I wish, I'm like, I wish people knew, just go to the union with the leap. Yeah, that's that's a great way to uh, that's a great message to end with, and I'll reiterate it. If you're in a situation where you're thinking of reporting a colleague for suspicious behavior, please just take that colleague. Have the courage to ask that colleague if they're okay. At least do them the service of, you know, before you you march forward thinking that it's just going to be a, you know, something that's taken care of easily because you're basically. Even if you have suspicions and there's nothing going on, that person will still face repercussions you can't imagine. In some cases, there may be no evidence of it. So just really do the the right thing and talk to the person first. If there's no other way to move forward and you feel that uh, you or your staff or the people you're treating are in danger, then go ahead and do what you have to do. But please talk to the person first. It could make a huge difference. Yeah. Great message, Nathan. All right. Thank you so much, Mystery Nurse. You really brought it for us. <laughs> We're very grateful that you're willing yeah. to do this. And uh, yeah, I think we can leave it there. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your courage. That's where change starts. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, Thanks. everybody. We'll see you next time. Yep. See you soon, guys. <laughs>